Good morning, everybody. We are in a series right now on the greatest chapter in the entire Bible, Romans chapter 8, because of its theme of the absolute security of a Christ follower. So with that in mind, I'm going to invite you to take your sermon notes and look on the front toward the top there. It says theme. So this indicates where we're going today in the teaching. Theme, to be a Christian is to be an adopted child of God with the privilege in times of difficulty of turning to our listening, waiting, loving, caring Father. So just as there are two ways for us to become part of a human family, birth, adoption, natural generation, legal act, so there are two ways for us to become part of God's family, new birth and adoption. Of course, the difference is that becoming members of God's family involves both of these, both birth and adoption. Today, we're focusing then on this theme of adoption. Now, we've already learned in this series that the Bible uses a variety of different terms to introduce us to what God has done to apply the salvation accomplished by Jesus Christ to our hearts and lives. So when we think of this whole theme of, of salvation, there's its accomplishment by the person and work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension back into heaven. But then there's also its application to our lives. And scripture makes use of all kinds of different images and terms in order to emphasize for us the magnitude of what is involved in salvation. For example, in the opening message, we were introduced to the theme of justification by faith. Paul writes in the opening verse of this letter, he states, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We learn that condemnation is a legal term. It pictures individuals standing before a judge. And in this case, God the judge has declared that we have right standing in the eyes of his law. So we were introduced to the theme of justification, which of course is the opposite of condemnation. Now, that's great news, isn't it? But the reality is it's certainly possible for an individual to be declared to have right standing before God the judge without necessarily feeling an intimate, personal, dynamic relationship with the judge. Right? So to be in right relationship with God is, of course, an amazing privilege. In fact, it's an essential privilege. You can't go to heaven. You can't be rightly related to God unless he declares you to be righteous in his sight. But having said that, to be loved and cared for by God as your father from the standpoint of personal experience and intimacy is even greater. Now a second term that the Bible uses to describe the awesome privilege it is to be connected to God and salvation is the term the new birth, regeneration, being born again. And here the Apostle Paul in verse 6 kind of draws our attention to that theme in his statement, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life. So here we were spiritually dead, no interest in God, Jesus, the Bible, none of those things. And here we sit today, hopefully alive because of the work of the Holy Spirit. That is no small privilege. 
What I'm suggesting to you, though, is adoption, again, from the point of view of experience, is even greater. J.I. Packer, a number of years ago now, like 50 years ago or so, wrote a book that would go on to become a classic entitled Knowing God. Perhaps you've read it. It's an awesome book. In that statement, in his chapter on our becoming the children of God, he makes this observation. The revelation to the believer that God is his father is, in a sense, the climax of the Bible. What a great statement. But then he goes on to say this, and this is on the screen. What is a Christian? The richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God for his father. You want to judge how well a person understands Christianity? Find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his or her father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls worship, prayers, and one's whole outlook on life, it means that that person really doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. Well, I'm hoping by the end of this message today, you do have a better understanding of what this involves, and you are beginning, if you haven't up to this point, experiencing God's tremendous love and grace for you through his son Jesus. What a privilege it is to be a Christian. As a matter of fact, this is the privilege that distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. No other religious system, no other faith system talks about having a personal, dynamic, intimate, loving relationship with God. Islam doesn't, Buddhism doesn't, Confucianism or Judaism or any other ism doesn't, only Christian faith. So every believer can save from the heart, God has become my loving father, and I have become his deeply loved child. So this then, to connect some of these dots that we're talking about in terms of the absolute security of the believer, our theme for this chapter, this then is further assurance to you concerning the security of your relationship to him. And you know what? It also underscores your value and worth. I was somewhat surprised, really shocked the other day when I saw the results of a survey taken two years ago, 2021, by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which indicated that one-third of all female high school students admitted to having thoughts of suicide. Now, this whole topic of mental health is a huge issue, and I certainly don't want to minimize the complexity of things by offering some kind of a very simplistic answer. I don't want to do that. But the reality is, whether you're a female high school student or whatever you are today, we need to find our sense of identity, our worth, and our value in the fact of what God says about us. So the truth of the matter is not what your friends think of you, not even what you think of yourself. The truth of the matter is that what God asserts about you and what he's asserting is you belong to him you are his deeply loved child so we come then today to consider the doctrine of adoption which for i'm not sure what reasons tended to be a greatly neglected truth during much of church history martin luther during the reformation had a little to say about it this 
Most of his successors and other reformers didn't for whatever reasons. But I think you're going to discover this morning, at least I hope you do, that this is a subject that is rich in its practical significance for you and for me. So with that in mind, if you're physically able, I'm going to invite you to stand right now for the reading of God's word as recorded for us today in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. Let's hear the truth of God. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, if we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Here ends the reading of scripture. You may be seated. For the last few weeks, our focus has been on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We were introduced to the fact a couple weeks ago when my partner in ministry, Dave Miles, was here, that the Holy Spirit, in a sense, has invaded our lives. If you're a Christian, you're indwelt by the Spirit. Paul says in verse 9 of this chapter, if you're a Christian, you can't be a Christian without having the Holy Spirit in you. And we discovered, among other things, that he has united us to Christ. We're connected to him. We also discovered he's setting us free from the power of sin. He's the one who enables us to struggle against the remains of sin in our lives. And now we're going to learn this morning an additional function he performs, and that's his vital work of adopting individuals into God's family. Now, wonder, I wonder if you noticed in the reading this morning of this passage, every single verse emphasizes two themes. Every verse draws attention to the fact in some way that we're God's children, and every verse links that reality to the work of the Holy Spirit. So this entire paragraph concerns the witness that he gives to us that we're the children of God and the assurance that that provides. All right, so let's explore this theme today by looking at the three questions you see on your outline. First question is, is this, what is the meaning of adoption? Well, I want to give you a definition Look at the background and then some characteristics. So a definition comes, I want to take you back in time to the 1640s in England where a group of more than a hundred theologians, pastor types called divines got together in England to write what are called the Westminster Standards. There's a, a confession of faith, a larger catechism, and then to help parents in the education of their children regarding biblical themes and truth. They also wrote a shorter catechism. So in answer to question number three of the shorter catechism, what is adoption? This is the answer that's given. Adoption is an act. We'll come back to that concept shortly. It's an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the children of God. Now the Greek word translated in our text, adoption, is found five times in the New Testament, only in the writings of Paul. 
So none of the other apostles really address this. And the word basically means the placing of a son. The placing of a son. That's what the word means. The background here is that of the Roman custom of adoption in which a father in a special ceremony before witnesses would adopt a slave as a son. Now I know it's politically correct to talk about sons and daughters, but this is not gonna be politically correct. Why is that? Because this is the Roman concept. Girls were not adopted. Slaves were adopted, male slaves were adopted to become sons so that the father of the family would have an heir to the estate. So, the Roman concept of adoption is the background here, and because it didn't involve girls or women, Paul here is, is and Paul is using the Roman context, and very clearly then, he's, he's referring to sons being adopted, not girls. But that's not to deny, of course, the biblical teaching that women as well as men become the children of God, all right? So we need to understand this against the Roman background and also that the slave's debts would be canceled. So if you can imagine this, here's somebody that used to be a slave owned by somebody, that somebody adopts that male slave to become his son, heir to everything that the father now possesses. And so with that as background, this is what Paul says in verse 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. A young couple, after struggling for years with the pain of infertility, decided to adopt a four-year-old girl. And the early months of bonding went very, very well. The day came when this little four-year-old came up to her father and said, Daddy, would you help me tie my shoelaces? And all of a sudden, the father burst into tears. And this little girl is wondering, you know, what did I say wrong to upset my father? Well, it wasn't that she said anything wrong. This, is, this was the very first time that his daughter referred to him as Daddy. And it just gripped his heart with a great deal of emotion, as you can imagine. Well. From the standpoint of intimacy, we can do what this little girl did. We're the adopted children of God, having been adopted from out of the orphanage of this world by the work of the Holy Spirit. So I'm wondering this morning, what do you know about this in experience? I mean, the truth of our adoption isn't something that we're supposed to simply accept by faith give intellectual credence to. Oh yeah, the Bible says we're adopted children of God. I guess that's true. No, this is something you and I are meant to enjoy. This is talking about experience, to know and experience the love of God and his assurance because of an intimate, vital connection to him. So we've looked at definition. We've looked at background. So what are the characteristics of adoption? I want to mention three for you. Number one, it's a legal action. It's a legal action. God declares that he's now our father and that we are his, part of his family. So if the idea of being born again, regeneration, emphasizes the interchange that, are, 
a person experiences adoption emphasizes the change in our legal status and our great privileges. So first characteristic, characteristic is it's a legal action. Secondly, it's an act, not a process. Remember the definition that I read to you, adoption is an act of God's free grace. So it's done all at once, not in stages. Certainly the appreciation and the enjoyment of our adoption is something that occurs over the years as our relationship to the Lord grows. But adoption is a legal instantaneous act. You either are adopted or you're not. And this is saying if you're in Christ, you're adopted. All right, so it's a legal action. It's an act, not a process. And then adoption remains in effect permanently. Let me ask you, if you're a parent and you have a child who acts out inappropriately, now I know that never happens to your kids, but it certainly did for mine. I mean, do you kick the child out of the family or do you say, gee, I don't know what we're gonna do now. I mean, you're gonna have to be reborn or maybe we're gonna have to go back to the court and, and sign papers all over again and hopefully you'll become adopted again. I mean, that would be nonsense, right? Of course it doesn't mean that. Well, the reality is we don't cease to be God's children only to become his children again if we fulfill certain conditions. No, it doesn't work that way. Once God has adopted us, we remain his children forever. Look at this statement by Jesus in John chapter 10. He says, my father who has given them to me, and by the way, you're part of the them, if you're a believer. That's what he's talking about, believers here. So my father has given them to me is greater than all. Now notice this phrase, no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So what does that say to you this morning? I mean, how does it make you feel to know that God selected you to be his adopted child? Remember what the verse says here in Romans 8, the spirit you received brought about your adoption. So God in his sovereign grace chose you to include you in his family forever. I've talked to some people who were adopted and a number described to me their experience when they found out that that was their reality. You know, maybe they were six, 16, whatever age they were. And they said to me, you know, Rich, initially I responded by saying, wait a minute, so you're not my parents? Well, yeah, honey, we're your parents. We adopted you. So you're not my like biological parents? Well, no, we're not. And frankly, they felt a bit hurt by that. But the more they thought about it, at least those that I've talked to, I'm sure this isn't true universally of all adopted children, but all the ones that I've talked to essentially said, Rich, you know, the thing that I realized is that other kids have been born into their family. Maybe they were in an accident, you know, maybe they were an oops child. My parents told me on a number of occasions, especially my mom, I was an oops child. But I know without any doubts, my parents wanted me. I wasn't an accident, they selected me because they wanted me. And so adoption shouts the truth, I am wanted. 
So that's what God is saying to you this morning. He adopted each one of us as his children. Didn't have to, but he wanted to. So how does it make you feel today as a Christian to know that God selected you to be part of his family? It was a sovereign act of God's grace so that now you have a right to all of the privileges of the children of God. You say, okay, what are those privileges? Well, one is you've got the Holy Spirit in your life. Related to that is that he witnesses to your inner spirit, says the Apostle Paul, that you are God's deeply loved child. Another privilege, you have access to God in prayer. The only people who have access to God in prayer are his children. Nobody else really has the right to call him Father in heaven, but you do. What a privilege, and you're protected, you're cared for, you're loved. He gives you loving discipline, oh yes he does, because he's a caring heavenly father. And you have Jesus as your older brother. Yes, he's your Lord, he's your Savior, but he's also your older brother. And you are a fellow heir with Christ of all that he possesses, which is everything. So that's your privileged position, and it's a permanent act. God does not kick us out of his family when we mess up. He invites us to come back to him, to turn, to repent, to be forgiven. But we're still included in his family, because once adopted, always adopted. So that's the meaning. All right, let's move on to another question here. What is the purpose then of our adoption? Well, I want to mention three. One purpose of adoption is to encourage growth in our loving obedience to our Father, to God. Well, look at verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. We look at this word led which is underscored here in this verse. And I think oftentimes we think of God giving us guidance, particularly when it comes to issues like a career choice or marriage. Lord, what do you want me to do? Be a baker, a, you know, a postal carrier, a truck driver? What is it you want me to do? And Lord, who is it you want me to marry? Person X, Y, or Z, or remain single, right? I mean, those are the kinds of questions we come in that come into our minds when we think of concepts like being led by the Spirit of God. And as awesome as those are and things that we need in life, that's not what Paul is talking about here when he uses this word led. He's talking about holy living. He's talking about obedience. It follows from the previous verse that we were talking about last week on the mortification or the killing of sin. Remember this verse? Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, that's your old sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death, you mortify the misdeeds of the body, your sin, you will live. So now he says, okay, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. So the spirit convicts us of wrongdoing and leads us to take appropriate action in order to honor God by obeying him in our lives. So right now, as a matter of fact, the Spirit of God may be leading you to deal with a particular area of wrongdoing in your life. Maybe you know it's poison, it's destructive for you and other people, and he's been convicting you, and you know you need to make some changes in your life in order to honor God more consistently. So the killing of sin is something that we do. 
but we do it by the Spirit. He's the one who gives us the desire and the power to grow in obedience. Now elsewhere, Paul describes it like this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, continue to work out your salvation. Get it out there, you know, display it with fear and trembling, a phrase that essentially means with humility. Notice, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So these verses are teaching us that God is constantly at work in your heart and life, giving you every desire and interest to grow in your faith. Think of it this way. Every desire that you have for God, to love him, to obey him, to come to worship on a rainy Sunday morning, to study his word, to be in fellowship with other believers, to share your faith, to serve somebody else. All of these desires are desires that are worked in you by God's spirit. Yes, you are performing those actions, certainly. But where does the, even the desire or the interest come from? From God himself. So God leaves nothing to chance. He's going to make absolute certain about this, that you and I are going to grow in our loving obedience. So that's the first purpose. Now here's the second of our adoption. is to help us to live in an awareness of God's grace. Now here's how Paul describes it in verse 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves. Remember the background here of a father adopting a slave? So the owner becomes the father. The slave becomes the child. So the spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. So when you receive the spirit, you receive him not as one who's going to lead you into a view of Christianity that's all about rules and regulations and kind of a slavery. No, no, that's not it at all. I recall the story that Jesus shared on one occasion, often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son, the son who takes part of his inheritance and takes off, spends it all in wild living, returns home, Dad throws him a big party. Hey, my son is back. And the oldest son becomes very resentful and at one point says this to his father, Luke 15, 29. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. <clears throat> so here he is viewing his sonship as slavery. All these stupid rules, you know? And maybe that's how you feel about Christianity in the church slavery, all these rules, go here, do this, study that. And like the older brother, you know, one, you perhaps think that God loves others more than he loves you. If you sense that today, I want to just encourage you and invite you to make it your prayer that the Holy Spirit will help you to see the privilege that you now have to know God until you begin and experience to enjoy his love. The phrase that the Puritans oftentimes used if a Christian wasn't experiencing what he or she was open to experiencing is, okay, sue God for it. Go before God and sue him for that blessing because he's promising it to you. So ask him to enrich your life, to help you to realize how much he loves you 
and cares about you as his child. So Paul is saying when you receive the Spirit, he doesn't lead you into slavery. Instead, he leads you into the awareness of the Father's grace and love for you. All right, a third purpose is for the Spirit to assure us of the Father's love even in times of suffering and pain. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, our inner spirit, that we are God's children. Okay, now go back to verse 15. And by him, that is by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Now this word for cry is not conjuring up the picture of a, you know, a cry of nearness or intimacy and joy, those kinds of things. It's just the opposite. It's a cry of pain. It's a cry of suffering. It's the very word that Jesus is used to describe Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, you know, it's easy when life is just great. You know, everything is going well, the kids are behaving, and you've got a great job and a wonderful career, and, you know, no huge bills to be anxious about. Everything is just fine to sense, okay, God must love me. Look at all the good stuff that's happening to me in life. But it's not just in the good times. It's also in the really painful times that the Spirit of God comes and assures us we belong to God. You know, when you're hurting, when you've lost your partner, when you have a child in distress, when sickness strikes, or when you find yourself in a relationship that's just falling apart, in those difficult moments of pain and difficulty, you cry, Father, you understand, your son has been through this, my older brother who knows all about this. And when you're tempted to think, well, you know, maybe if I just prayed more, went to church more, studied the Bible more, maybe this stuff wouldn't be happening to me and God would love me more. The Spirit says, no, you're already God's deeply loved child. Every once in a while we sing a song around here that I personally has always touched my own heart. It goes like this. Who am I? Who am I that the highest king, a reference to God, who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God, yes I am. Free at last, he has ransomed me. His, run, his, love, his grace runs deep. Well, I was a slave to sin. Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. In my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You, you are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Not what others think, not what I think. I am who you say I am. So those are the purposes of adoption, to grow in loving obedience and awareness of God's grace and assurance in times of difficulty and pain. All right, so what are the results of all of this? Well, there are two that I want to emphasize, two major results. First is we have a father. Verse 15, spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now you may know that Abba, Abba 
was often the very first word that a Jewish child, toddler, you know, would learn to speak, equivalent to something like our dada or mom or you know mama or something like that, Abba, our father. Imagine we get to call the God of the universe who created it all and sustains everything by the word of his power, we get to call him Abba, our father. Now maybe that doesn't strike you as a particularly radical idea, especially if you kind of grew up in a church where from childhood you've been taught to pray to God as your father in heaven. A number of years ago though, a New Testament scholar named Jeremiah did a study on this word Abba and drew three significant conclusions about it. Number one, he discovered this term of intimacy, father, is never ever used in the Old Testament as an address to God. There are times when he's compared to a father, but he's never approached or addressed as father. Second conclusion he came to was, Jesus used that in almost every prayer. You go through the Gospels, every one of his recorded prayers, except for one, finds Jesus addressing God as Father. And so essentially, not in the Old Testament, Jesus essentially always, and then his third conclusion is, we're authorized to use the same term. Wow, it is radical. So what kind of a father is God anyway? Let me use some terms to describe him. First of all, he's a caring father. Would you like to know this morning how much your heavenly father cares for you? Well, look at this verse in John 17. Jesus is praying for our unity and he says to the father, then, you know, if we're united, the world will know that you sent me and will understand, now notice this, that you love them, a reference to us, you love them as much as you love me. Wait a minute, did I read that right? That God loves me as much as he loves Jesus? Can that be? You see, it's not that we're legally adopted, God signs the papers and it's all legal, whoopee-doo. He now loves you as much as he loves his own son. I mean, that's staggering. I've shared with you on other occasions that my father was a distant, withdrawn workaholic and an alcoholic. And if he was grouchy and angry about whatever and got in his way, you know, that could not go well as I was often on the receiving end of some of his abuse. So what do you think it means to me to be teaching this this morning and to be talking about the fact that God cares that much about me, that he loves me so much with a love that's equal to the love he has for his son. This is what drew me to Christ as a boy of 12. The whole theme that God could become the father that essentially I never had. And that's how he feels about you. He cares about whatever it is that's going on in your life today, all the stress, the difficulty, the tensions, the anxiety that you're dealing with. You can commit it to him because he's a caring father. And not only is he a caring father, he's a consistent father. You know, he never has a bad day, never wakes up on the wrong side of the bed grouchy or grumpy, doesn't have mood swings, 
So that one minute he's super nice and the next minute he's mean and nasty, he's consistent. I have read that one thing that sometimes makes children resentful toward their parents is their inconsistency. When it comes to discipline, you know, they'll do one thing that's wrong and for that they get severely punished, do the same thing wrong and they're basically, you know, forget it, you know. And inconsistency when it comes to broken promises. Yeah, daughter, I'm going to take you fishing. Yeah, son, we're going to go to that ball game and it never happens. Broken promises. God is not like that. So it says in Proverbs 18, verse 30, Amplified Version, or excuse me, Living Bible, what a God he is, how perfect in every way, all his promises prove true. He's caring and he's consistent. And then one more, he's close, he's a close father. Some of you I know grew up with absentee dads. Maybe physically they were present, but they basically checked out. They were so drawn into their own world, you know, sports, television watching, the business project that needed done, whatever. By contrast, your heavenly father is never too busy for you. So if you wanna pray to him, you're never gonna be told, not now. You know, come back later, I'm busy. No, he's always available and he loves to hear from his children. So let's say you pray about whatever, and there are millions of other Christians around the world who are praying at the exact same time. You're never gonna to be told, we're sorry, but all lines are busy right now. We're experiencing an unusually high call volume. Your prayer though is important to God. Please remain on the line, someone will assist you surely, or you can visit our website at 777.heaven.org and figure things out for yourself with the help of our international chat community. No, God has no problem processing all the prayer requests at the same time because he's God. So this is the first practical result of your being adopted. You have a caring, consistent, close father. For some of us, perhaps the father we never had. Get close to him. And hear him say to you, you are mine. You are mine now. You're going to be mine tomorrow and well into the future. Always. Second great privilege, we have a, a family. 1 Peter 1.3. We are now members of God's own family. Would you like to know what that family is? Well, look at the next reference in 1 Timothy 3.15. That family is the church of the living God, the support and foundation of the truth. There are going to be times in your life when you're going to experience employment hurts, financial hurts, relational hurts, physical hurts, moral hurts, all kinds of hurts. And the reality is some of these hurts are going to shake you to the core. You won't know what to do. If you don't have a solid foundation and support, you're gonna crumble. And the Bible is telling us this is one reason why God established the church. In part to be the support and the foundation that you need in your life. So one great purpose for the church is for you to be helped in facing life's crushing problems. 
God never meant that you would face your problems by yourself, and that's why he's established the local church. Now, here at City Church, our primary structure for getting this level of support and help from others is not this service. Say it isn't? No. If you've come today and you're hurting and you're hearing something through song or message or the prayer time or whatever, that's you find helpful in your time of struggle, great. That's wonderful. But the reality is this service has not been put together with the thought in mind of being the primary agent or the means by which we receive support. Why do we put this service together? This is a service of worship. This is vertical in its orientation. It's all about offering him. So what then are the structures that we have put in place to make sure you're getting support in the tough times of life? Sunday morning communities, growth groups. Those are the two primary means whereby, and you wanna know why we're constantly pushing your involvement in these things, why it's so crucial that you're involved in, in one or the other or both, is because we know you're gonna need support. And when that time strikes you, where you don't know where to turn, what to do, you need the support of others in the church family. So what are the results of adoption you have a caring, consistent, close father and a family of brothers and sisters here and around the world. Awesome. Now, to close the teaching today, and I realize I've already gone over time. I'm a bad boy today. Okay, sorry about that, but I, I, I need to do this. One more thing here, okay? And that is, um, I want you to wrestle with some questions that I hope you'll continue to ask yourself well after this service has been over this morning. So here they are, I've adopted them from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Here are the first two of seven. Do I appreciate my adoption? Do I value it? Do I daily remind myself of what a privilege it is to be a child of God? I hope you do. Two. Do I have assurance of my adoption? Do I daily dwell on the love of God to me? I hope you do. Three, do I regard God as my Father in heaven, loving, honoring, obeying him, seeking and welcoming his fellowship and trying and everything to please him just like a child would? Parents, do I think of Jesus Christ, my Savior and Lord, as my brother? Do I think daily how close he is to me, how completely he understands me, how much he cares for me? How about these? Number five, do I look forward daily to that great family occasion when the children of God will gather together in heaven before their father and their brother and Lord? Do I love my Christian brothers and sisters with whom I live day by day in a way that I will not be ashamed of when in heaven I think back over life? Finally, am I proud of my father and his family, to which by his grace I belong. May it be so. What a privilege it is to be a Christian, right? What's adoption? Oh, wow. It's an act of God's free grace, whereby we're received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the children of God. Amen. Let's pray together. 
Father, we're so thankful this morning that you've adopted us into your family to be your deeply loved, cared for children. Thank you for loving us to such an extent, for placing us into a family of brothers and sisters for support and encouragement. Lord, help us to think often of the tremendous privileges that are now ours, even as we look forward to a day when we will be in your presence to enjoy you forever. In the name of our older brother, Savior and Lord, even Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen.